Well, good evening, Hellas Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures tonight. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 5, to the passage that was read for us a moment ago. And this will be the first time in several months we, we have not opened our Bibles to the book of Acts. If you've been with us for a little while, we've been journeying through the book of Acts, and we will continue that journey. We will, Lord willing, complete our study of Acts, but we're putting a pause on that to examine uh, four values of our church. As we've been celebrating our eighth anniversary last week and surveying our faith family, trying to figure out, okay, what do we value as a people? Who is God forming and shaping us to be? It's given us the opportunity to kind of refresh how we articulate and express what we cherish together as a church. Values, of course, they help us uh, assess the health of our body. Values kind of create and speak to the culture of our body. Values do so many things for us, and so we're going to be introducing four uh, freshly articulated that it, values that encompass all the values that we've uh, been about for the past eight years, but just kind of condensing them and stating them afresh in the life of our church uh, over these next four weeks. But before we do that, let me voice a prayer for us. God, as we open our Bibles, would you open up our hearts to receive the nourishment to be found in its pages? Would you open our hearts to respond to the grace that we will find in Jesus as we think about the table tonight and as we study your word tonight? God, would you speak and move in ways that only you can? We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of my favorite things about Jesus, if you pay attention to his life and ministry as you read through the Gospels, you're going to see a remarkable propensity for Jesus to leverage ordinary moments for extraordinary purposes. I love that when Jesus stepped into our world and he lived the life that he did, he didn't go about creating extraordinary opportunities for people. No, he engaged in ordinary moments, but he engaged those ordinary moments in an extraordinary way. It was at a wedding, just an ordinary wedding, where Jesus first turned water into wine. It was in an ordinary conversation at night with a man named Nicodemus where Jesus explained the the beauty of being born again and what it means to be acted upon by the Spirit of God so that we might enter into God's kingdom. It was at a well when Jesus met a woman from Samaria who had a thirsty soul and he communicated the beauty of his grace and his goodness for people just like her and It was at a picnic, a really large picnic, when Jesus fed the multitudes uh, with the first century equivalent of a Lunchable, just a few fish, a little bit of bread. He broke it, blessed it, distributed it far and wide, feeding multitudes of people. It was at an ordinary funeral where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Time and time again, we see Jesus engaging these ordinary moments and leveraging them for extraordinary purposes. And what that communicates for you and I tonight is is that it kind of takes the pressure off of us as we seek to advance God's kingdom here in the city of Seattle. I think when we talk about living a missional life, a life on mission, sometimes we can put so much pressure on ourselves to create these extraordinary events that will reach the masses, we miss Jesus' ordinary approach in the Gospels. We don't have to carry the pressure and the burden to create extraordinary events and extraordinary opportunities for others to step into. No, we look to Jesus and we see him stepping into 
the ordinary rhythms of regular life, but he's stepping into those ordinary rhythms in an extraordinary way. And so when it comes to living on mission and engaging a life on mission here in the city, we want to be a people who follows in Jesus' example, believing that that will ultimately uh, have the biggest impact in the long run because we're not running ourselves ragged trying to create and establish these extraordinary activities, these abnormal moments for people. No, we're just engaging in ordinary things, ordinary rhythms, but we're going about it in an extraordinary way. I believe that this rhythm sits very close to the heart of God. I think this is one of the deepest meanings of the incarnation. I mean, you think about what the incarnation is, that God took on flesh and he dwelt among us, that the creator of the universe became an ordinary human, And he lived an ordinary life of a servant, but of course he engaged his life in an extraordinary way, leveraging his ordinary life for an extraordinary purpose. And we who follow Jesus want to go and do likewise. In one of the most unique environments, one of the most ordinary experiences that we have on a daily, weekly basis is the experience we have at the table. And so what I want us to think about tonight is the image of the table and figure out how God might equip us and empower us to take this ordinary moment of sharing meals with people and leverage them for extraordinary purposes. So let me ask you, what are some of the most memorable meals you have had in your life? What are some of the most memorable meals that you have had in your life? You could probably think of several. I'm going to give you a few examples from my life in recent history. Uh, Just past year, I had to suffer for Jesus by going to Hawaii and officiating a wedding uh, for Jay and Travis, and uh, it was a beautiful occasion being able to go and share that moment with them and many others, and of course, after the, the, the service and the ceremony, there was a reception dinner, a reception feast where we just ate all kinds of incredible food. All kinds of poke, because we're in Hawaii, all kinds of crab legs. I mean, it was just incredible. The spread was amazing, and we were sharing it together as friends and families, and it was just a rich, rich moment. And then about a day or two after that, Kristen Miyasoto, who's originally from that area, and her family lives over there, she reached out to all of us who had come to the wedding from Seattle, many of whom are a part of our church, and said, hey, our family wants to host you all here. And so they took about 20 of us into their home on a regular night, and we walked in, and they had this incredible spread of beef tenderloin and chicken thighs and more poke and Hawaiian punch and all these things. And and we just spent hours just feasting together telling stories, laughing at Kristen, doing all those, all those fun things that we had the opportunity to do, sharing that meal together. Another memorable moment I had was uh, this past Friday on Valentine's Day. My wife and I didn't go out and share a meal together by ourselves. We have three kids, so all of us went out together. We went to a sushi joint not, close, not far from where we are staying right now. And And it was a memorable moment for me because I was able to give my daughter Delaney her first uh, piece of real sushi. Like she's had the avocado rolls and things like that, but I was able to give her some sashimi. And she took it, she ate it, she enjoyed it, and I was thrilled. And so we had a a remarkable moment, a remarkable time making memories as a family eating sushi together. Now, as you think about some of the more memorable meals that you've experienced over the course of your life, chances are you have not thought of a single moment when you were moving through a drive-thru, that it wasn't a time when you were speeding through a drive-thru at McDonald's or Taco Bell or Taco Time or whatever the case may be. Chances are those moments that popped into your memory weren't the ones that you spent by yourself in your dorm room eating ramen noodles. 
Chances are those moments that popped into your mind had nothing to do with you uh, running through the airport, scarfing down a chicken sandwich so you can connect your, con- connect, make your connecting flight, running past everyone, not seeing anyone. Chances are the most memorable moments in your life journey, revolving meals, didn't consist of any of that. Chances are the, those memories consisted, were marked by the presence of friends, the presence of family, the presence of good food, the presence of good drink, festivity most likely marked that occasion. One of the things that I think, one of the ways in which God has wired us as creatures in his image is that I believe God has wired each and every one of us for, with a longing for feasting and fellowship. A longing for feasting and fellowship that shows up in a variety of ways in our world and that are a subtle anticipation of the hope that we have as human beings. I think one of the reasons when you kind of pay attention to what heaven is like and the way heaven is described in the scriptures, I think this dynamic of feasting and fellowship is one of the most remarkable things about why we hope and long for heaven to come. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about heaven. I don't know what you think heaven is going to be like if you think once you get to heaven, it's just going to be one endless sing along and we're just going to sing forever and ever and ever. And Now, I like to sing, but I don't like to sing that much. I'm going to enjoy singing in heaven, but I really hope heaven isn't as monotonous as that. I really hope there's some diversity and texture, and if we're paying attention to how the Bible describes heaven, we're going to find heaven to be a place marked by texture and diversity. It's not going to be monotonous. It's not going to be mundane. And one of the unique features of heaven that is often overlooked by those of us living for Jesus right now is this dynamic of feasting and fellowship. In Revelation chapter 19, a scene of heaven is given to us, and what's described there is the marriage supper of the Lamb where we are united with Jesus forever. And what we're going to do in the midst of that fellowship is feast. This marriage supper that we are going to enjoy one day. And and it is that future hope that we want to find ways of anticipating in the here and now. Find ways of, of creating moments and flashes of that future hope in the world that is. I think the Bible does this for us. Which is why all throughout scripture, you see feasting and fellowship woven together at significant moments in the Bible storyline. In the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth and he established human beings in Eden, you know that Eden was a place marked out by feasting and fellowship. Adam and Eve had access to all the food and all the fruit and all the vegetation, all the life that was present in Eden. But they weren't just feasting in Eden, they were fellowshipping in Eden, which is why they walked with God in the cool of the day. Feasting and fellowship, marking humans, humanity's experience in the Garden of Eden. Now, of course, things went south in the Bible storyline and we lost access to that, but this, this echo of feasting and fellowship continued to pop up in the history of God's people and how God would deal with us in this world. You take the book of Exodus In the book of Exodus, there you have this incredible meal, this significantly symbolic meal referred to as the Passover that was shared by God's people in the moment of their liberation when they were brought out of slavery in Egypt and they were led towards the freedom of being with God in the promised land. 
And as the people of Israel are making their wanderings through the wilderness, one of the things that God would assure them of over and over and over again is that he was taking them to a place that was marked by milk and honey, a place where feasting and fellowship would characterize their interactions once again. You get into the New Testament and you see the same dynamic and how it's emphasized in the hospitality of the church. The way the New Testament enforces and reinforces the church's conviction to be a hospitable people that is hosting others. And in the first four centuries of the church's existence, the ordinary place where she gathered was in homes around tables, feasting and fellowshipping together. Then you consider when all is said and done, getting to Revelation chapter 19, the new heavens and the new earth, you have feasting and fellowship popping up there once again. This is a constant refrain that we need to capture and we need to communicate to the world around us. And you see this being captured and you see this being communicated in the way in which Jesus would walk through the world and the way that he would go about ordinary activities, engaging them in extraordinary ways. You just think about Jesus uh, what his life and ministry was all about. He did a few things regularly. He taught regularly. And it is said constantly that Jesus proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God and he taught the Bible with authority, unmatched, unrivaled authority. But then Jesus also did some things when he would heal the sick and he would cast out demons and he would perform miracles. And we've said at times over the years that every time you see a miracle being performed in the Gospels and any time God works a miracle in your life or in the lives of anyone around you, you are to receive that miracle as a foretaste of the world that is to come. That it is a little flash of our future. And every miracle speaks to that dynamic because we're moving towards a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no sickness, there will be no death, there will be no demonic influence. There will be no unbelief. All of it is a foretaste of what is to come. Well, I would argue that every time you see Jesus sitting at a table, sharing a meal with people, that that act in and of itself was another way in which Jesus was giving a foretaste. He was giving us a flash of our future hope, of the feasting and the fellowship that we are going to enjoy with him forever and ever and ever. So you want to pay attention to what Jesus does in the Gospels, seeing them as kind of like previews to a movie. If you've ever watched a preview and had your appetite whetted to see the movie, so you're saying, I got to go see that movie, and you put it on the calendar because the, the, the trailer was so strong and it was so uh, consuming that you said, yes, I've got to see that. This happened to Asher when he saw the trailer to Sonic the Hedgehog, and all of a sudden he wants to see Sonic the Hedgehog. That, that little glimpse of this big movie that's going to come has just got him rolling, got him moving. That's what he wants. But when you see these flashes of what Jesus is doing in his life and his ministry, these previews of a much greater story that's going to be told one day, a much bigger picture that is going to be realized, this is how we want to see Jesus' life and his ministry and the way that he interacted with people. Consider in the Gospel of Luke the number of times Jesus is found feasting and fellowshipping with people. I'll give you a rundown. Luke chapter 5, the passage that we're going to look at here in a moment. Jesus is sitting there with Levi and tax collectors and other sinners, and they're at a banquet in a guy's house. 
Luke chapter 7, a Pharisee asked Jesus into his home to share a meal with him. And Jesus goes because he did not discriminate. He shared tables with religious people and irreligious people, with wealthy and with the poor. He was indiscriminate in the way he approached the table. Luke chapter 9, that's when Jesus fed the 5,000. In Luke chapter 10, that's when Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. Martha is sweating kind of the... The, the presence of the home and she's more concerned with giving a, a certain impression to Jesus that she gets distracted from his presence and Jesus has to remind her through Mary, look, I just want to be with you. You don't have to impress me. You don't have to do tricks for me. Just, just be with me. This is what I'm here for. And so Mary is found seated at Jesus' feet, fellowshipping with him in that moment. And Martha had to learn that dynamic there. Then you get into Luke chapter 11. Another Pharisee asked Jesus over for a meal. Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal when he gives a parable uh, about who it is we should invite to our tables and share our meals with. Then in Luke chapter 15 is the moment when Jesus gives the famous story of the prodigal sons. The setting for that story is a meal that he's sharing with sinners and tax collectors, with irreligious people and some religious onlookers who were present in that moment then in Luke chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house, says, I must, I must come and stay at your house today, and Zacchaeus welcomes him there. Luke chapter 22, there's the last supper that Jesus would share with his disciples before he is crucified. And then in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus is resurrected, he shares a meal with two disciples at a place called Emmaus, only at the end of the chapter to then return to Jerusalem and to eat fish with his disciples once again. Feasting and fellowship was a recurring theme in Jesus' life and ministry. So much so that a guy by the name of Robert Karras wrote a book uh, called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. It's a really good read. It's an interesting read. I would encourage you to read it, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And this is what he said. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a mill, at a mill, or coming from a mill. Feasting and fellowship was regular, it was ordinary in his life rhythms. And when we think about the table tonight and trying to press this deeper into our DNA as, as an opportunity that we value, we want to we think about it well. So let's look at this one example in Luke chapter 5 of how Jesus uses the table and how the table is present here. And we're going to look at the story. When he, it's interesting that in verse 27, there, there's... There's a table present, but it's the wrong kind of table. It's not the kind of table that Jesus wants to be ordinarily employed in our discipleship and in our life on mission. It says in verse 27 that after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Le Levi sitting at the tax office. Or some translations, sitting at the tax booth. He is at a table that was the wrong kind of table. We know it was the wrong kind of table because of who Levi was by reputation up to this point in time. It says that he was a tax collector. Now, that might seem like an innocent profession. Some of you may be tax collectors. I don't know, and I'm not here to offend you. But in the first century, this was not a noble profession. It certainly wasn't a noble profession for a Jewish man like Levi to be a tax collector. For him to be a tax collector meant that he had turned his back on the Jewish people and he was employed by the, empire, the Roman Empire. So that Ro the Romans who were occupying the land and they were really in charge of all that would take place in Judea and Samaria and surrounding region, that occupation wasn't, uh, the people of Israel weren't excited about that. 
In fact, they hated the fact, many of them hated that the Romans were occupying their land. And if a Jewish person became an employee of Rome, they were viewed as a traitor. They were not looked at fondly. And then tax collectors had reputations for being kind of exploiters of people. As they collected taxes on duties, such as the use of roads or being able to, people being able to dock in and out of harbors. And tax collectors would collect taxes on the importing and the exporting of goods such as fish. Now, what that means is, is that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen before they met Jesus, chances are they interacted with Levi or a tax collector very much like Levi. And chances are they were exploited by Levi or a tax collector like Levi because that's what they did. There wasn't much regulation going on in the way that they could collect taxes. As long as they gave Rome what Rome wanted, they could upcharge whatever they wanted to fatten their own pockets, and that's what they did. This is what attributed to their horrible reputation because the system fostered exploitation. As first century tax collectors acted like loan sharks, they were extortionists. In many ways, they were kind of like first century mob bosses. They were gangsters in the first century in the way that they handled people and exploited them. There was such a strong stigma attached to tax collectors in the first century that it was very similar to how Jews viewed fellow Jews who served as Nazi informants in, the, in World War II. That same stigma was attached to them. It's the same stigma that we attach to anyone who profits through the exploitation of other people. So what stigma is attached to a pimp? What stigma is attached to a drug dealer? What stigma is attached to a human trafficker? That type of stigma is how tax collectors were viewed in the first century. This is who Levi was. The Mishnah and the Talmud were a couple of writings. They were Jewish writings coming out of about the second century, third century AD. And, and these writings were a collection of kind of teachings of way in which rabbis and different people taught the Old Testament and all these types of things. And so you can learn a whole lot by looking at the Mishnah and the Talmud as far as how people understood the Bible in Jesus' day. And, and what's interesting is that in those documents, tax collectors were placed next to thieves and murderers because that's how they were viewed. A tax collector was the equivalent of a thief and a murderer. They were universally despised. And the first thing we're told in verse 27 is that Jesus went out and he looked in a tax collector's direction. And that tax collector was sitting in his tax booth. He was seated in a very real way at the wrong kind of table. This table in his tax booth wasn't designed so that Levi might serve others. This table that he was sitting at was designed so that Levi might exploit others. This wrong kind of table was an altar built only to serve the kingdom of self. It had no hint of the kingdom of God in it. It is from that table that Levi exercised power and manipulation and control. It is while he's seated at that table and others would come to him and he would look across the table and he would see another person. He would not see that person as an image bearer worthy of dignity and honor and respect. He would see that other person as an instrument, as someone to be used, as someone to be exploited so that his profit margin may grow irrespective of how theirs may be decreasing. It was the wrong kind of table because it was the kind of table that asked not how can I love and serve you, but what value can you add to my life? 
That's how he viewed everyone, most likely, who walked up to his tax booth. He's thinking along these lines, and that is the wrong kind of table. It is a wrong kind of table that exists so that people are viewed as instruments rather than image bearers, that people are taken advantage of in any discernible way, that people are only engaged to the degree in which they can benefit your life or they can benefit or add value to what you're doing as you are walking through this world. So it's the wrong kind of table that Levi is sitting, sitting at. No wonder Jesus approaches him and the first thing he does is he calls out to him. He says, okay, now follow me. And basically what Jesus does in that moment, he says, look, I've come to turn this table over. I've come to replace this table that's, that only serves the self, and I'm going to replace it with a table that is enlisted in the service of others. And so Jesus steps up, says, I'm going to turn this table over. Verse 27, follow me and leave. I heard the grace in Jesus' words. I don't know when the last time somebody, a Jewish leader in particular, would have approached Levi and looked him in the eyes and spoken to him in this kind of way. Chances are when other Jewish men and women would walk past Levi, they would put their head down and walk past him, shunning him and shaming him for the life that he's been leading and the ways in which he's been serving only himself. But now Jesus steps up and he sees him and he calls out to him, follow me, extending him incredible grace. You must be encouraged by this calling that Jesus would extend to a tax collector like Levi. It is this calling that reminds us that when Jesus, that Jesus' grace, it, it extends not only to the least of these in our world, but Jesus' grace extends to the worst of these in our world. When Jesus reaches Levi, he's declaring, I've come to reach the worst of the worst of society. So he calls out to Levi, follow me, and something happens in Levi's life. So in verse 27, verse 28, he leaves everything behind. He gets up and he begins to follow Jesus. In response to this grace that Jesus is extending to him, something comes alive within him. And it says that Levi got up. He experiences some type of resurrection in that moment as the language of getting up is the same words used to describe what Jesus would do in the tomb when he got up from the grave. This is what's going down in Levi's life. Something significant is happening. His heart is changing because Jesus is giving him grace. And it is this grace that he receives from Jesus which is going to mark what happens at the table in the very next scene. Because in the very next scene, suddenly we find Levi and Jesus and a bunch of other people sitting at a different kind of table. Only that table isn't the wrong kind of table. It is the right kind of table. Check it out in verse 29. It says, then Levi hosted a grand banquet for Jesus at his home. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with him, and they were all present there at this grand banquet that Jesus is hosting. I want you to think about the right kind of table. I want you to think about what this table was like, and as we think about how we're going to leverage our table, our tables, that we would leverage them in this, these directions as well. First off, this was a place of grace, that this new table that Levi is sitting at in his home, surrounded by all sorts of people, Jesus is in the midst of them. This is a place of grace. It's a place of grace because they are welcoming anyone and everyone to be a part of it. 
People just like Levi, other tax collectors and sinners who were far from God and despised by society, they were coming in and they were participating in this grand banquet. This was a place of grace. And this table then stands in stark contrast with another table you're going to read about in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, there's a table present there, but it's a table that is led out by a Pharisee. And when the Pharisee was about to throw this party in his home, he got very selective about who was going to come to the table. And he only invited his friends, his family, and wealthy people. He only invited people who could benefit him in some discernible way. And Jesus was a part of the group. So Jesus goes to the party, and when he sees this happening, he's like, look, this table is not a table of grace. This table is the wrong kind of table because you were excluding other types of image bearers from being here and hearing from me and being a part of this feasting and this fellowship that is taking place. And so Jesus stands up in the midst of this crowded room of wealthy people and, and religious people who, who have a very limited understanding of the types of people who were invited or should be invited to a party like that. And he says, look, you guys are missing the mark. And he makes a statement in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. It is a challenging statement where Jesus challenges the wrong kinds of tables, tables that aren't marked by grace, but that are marked by something else. It is Luke chapter 14, verse 12, which is a passage that John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace years ago, said, you know, this is the most disobeyed passage in all of the Bible. This particular one that I'm about to read, that was his assessment. Christians disobey this passage more than perhaps any other. And listen to what he said. Jesus makes a statement in Luke chapter 14. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back, and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I want your table to be a place of grace. And if it's going to be a place of grace, you cannot limit the guest list. You cannot limit the guest list to people who can contribute something that you want for your own life. Your table should be open to people who can't give you anything or add value to your existence in any way, shape, or form. If there's no room for the marginalized in society at your table, then your table is not a place of grace. What would drive him to think along these lines? Well, there's a story in the Old Testament of a, of a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul and there was a freak accident when he was five years old that left him lame and crippled. And as a lame, crippled man in the first, back in antiquity, he wasn't welcome to many tables. In fact, he would have to kind of be on the outside with, with the marginalized because he was lame, because he was crippled. But then the son of David, or not the son of David, then David came up and David became king. And he heard about Mephibosheth and he says, I want you to go get him and I want you to bring him to my table. And what does he say to him when he shows up? When he walked into the room... David tells this lame, crippled man, you will always eat meals at my table. This king speaking to this crippled man, you will always have meals at my table. That's grace. This lame man had nothing to offer in value to the king of Israel. 
And we take that and we apply that in relation, our relationship with Jesus. And you wonder, what do you have to offer that would increase Jesus' value? How are you going to improve Jesus' existence in the universe? Well, you're not. You're not able to. You have nothing to bring to Jesus that will improve his existence in the universe. And so when he invites you to, your, to the table, he's not inviting you to his table believing that you have something to reciprocate or something to offer that he desperately needs to improve his state. No, when he invites you to his table, it's entirely by grace. I just want you to come and feast with me. I want you to come and fellowship with me. And Jesus extends that invitation to all types of people in the world. And as those of us who've experienced that grace in our lives, we go forth and do the same. We model that. We image that forth by turning our tables into a place of grace, which means we don't limit our guest list. It means that we don't engage in a social or an ethic of reciprocity, which is how most social interaction happens in our society. I'm going to interact with you to the degree that I can get something from you, but that's not an ethic of grace. We're not marked out by reciprocity. We are marked out by grace. We give, we give, we give. And so we don't limit the guest list to those who can contribute to our value or to imp- who can improve our existence in this world. No, we, our tables become places of grace when we are seeking to serve and to bless anyone and everyone who comes to it. This was Levi's example. This is what's going down in his life. And he's doing this, I believe, because he's experienced grace. I believe that, Jesus, that Levi knew who he was in society, that he was on the bottom rung of the social ladder. And when the Messiah reached out to him and said, hey, follow me, and he experienced that grace, he probably lived the rest of his life thinking, well, if Jesus wants me, he wants He wants everyone else too, right? If Jesus will accept someone like me, he can accept anyone. And so that experience of grace made his table very, very big so that it became a place of grace where all types of people were welcome. But not only does this table become a place of grace here, it becomes a place of community. A place of community. As, as this banquet is unfolding, as Levi and all his old friends and now his new friends, Jesus and the disciples are present there, it, this meal that they're sharing, this feasting and fellowship that's occurring, it's creating real community. It's creating real community. Just, just consider. It says that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining at the table with them. Now just let that image land on you for a moment. Peter, James, and John, former fishermen, are now reclining at the table with Levi and all his tax collector friends. The people who probably exploited them at one point in time in their lives, now they're feasting and fellowshipping together at this table where Jesus is present. I love that image. Because the table has this crazy ability to turn strangers into friends and friends into family. You can go one step further back. The table has an ability to turn enemies into family. The table can serve reconciliation. It can heal wounds and relationships. It can bring people together unlike any other environment. 
When we sit at a table and we feast and fellowship with other people, we're looking at people eye to eye and we're both being reminded of our creatureliness, that we are creatures, that we are not creators, that we are finite, that we are not infinite, that we are dependent, that we are not independent. So we're eating food and we're drinking drink because if we don't do that, we're going to die. And that's true of everyone else at the table, right? It's the great equalizer when you come to the table and you share meals together. And so the table creates this incredible opportunity for community to be created. And what I really love about this dynamic is that Levi is connecting the social dots in his life. I love the innocence of a new Christian or the innocence of a new disciple. He's not sitting back overly, being overly analytical about who's going to be at the table together. He's not thinking, man, I can't put fishermen I can't put that guy Peter next to my friend Jimmy, who is a tax collector. I can't put them together because it might get tense. They, they, he, he exploited Peter one time, and Peter's upset about that. So I can't put them in the same table, sharing that same space at the same time. I've got to micromanage this. No, that's not what Levi is doing. He's got his non-Christian friends. He has his new Christian friends, and he's pulling them all together in one setting. He's not micromanaging the situation. He's not sweating the tense moments and awkward conversations that can come up when you put diverse peoples together at one table, sharing a meal, sharing this time together. He's not micromanaging anything. He's just bringing everyone together. And I love this about Levi. You and I could, would do well to follow in his example. One of the things that Jesus tells us in John chapter 13 is that the world is going to know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. And I've read that verse many times, and I've always wondered, well, how is the world going to know that we love one another? They have to be able to see it and, and sense it and experience it. They, they're not going to get that kind of image from a distance if they're going to see the way in which you love one another. Well, then we all need to be together at the same time in the same place, and the table can provide that. So we want our table to be a place where community is created. We're bringing those who are far from God who do not yet know the Savior in. We're bringing our friends who do know the Savior. And we're allowing them to mesh together as Jesus is present with his people, ministering through us and working among us so that true, real community that promotes the kingdom of God can happen. Because not only is this table a place of grace and a place of community, when you get to verse 30, this is when you begin to see how this table becomes a place of mission. This table becomes a place of mission because in verse 30, the conversation that Levi or anyone who is socially conscious might have feared happening actually happened. Because you have a Pharisee asking a question that probably sucked all the air out of the room. It was a question that probably threw a wet blanket on the banquet that was being hosted in this moment. Verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, that is to Jesus' crew, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with people like that? Can you imagine how tense things got? How quiet perhaps the room became after this question was raised? How awkward of a moment this was? But this was a risk that Levi took when he brought all these people together in one, at one time and in one place. And if you're going to live a life on mission, you're going to have to take similar risks you're going to have to risk being put in situations where awkward questions are asked or insensitive statements are made. 
It's just par for the course as we live our life on mission. Let's, not, let's stop trying to micromanage the activity of God's kingdom and just let it be. And so here you have this moment where the Pharisee asks the question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus steps up and he brings the gospel. And in that moment, the table becomes a place of mission because the gospel is being heralded. The message of Jesus is being communicated. He's opening his mouth and he's speaking things that people need to hear. And suddenly that table, yes, it's a place of grace. Yes, it's a place of community. But it provides an opportunity for mission to occur. Jesus opens his mouth and says this. Verse 31, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love this statement. There's so, there's so much in it. He said, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's making it known that there's, there's not a single person in that room who has a moral compass that works well enough to lead them into the kingdom. He's saying, you guys think, you know, some of you believe you're better than others. You all have a moral compass that you're finding, but all of your moral compass, all of your moral compasses are broken. They're incapable of leading you into the kingdom of God. This was true of the Pharisees, who were probably the most moral people in the room, aside from the lack of love for neighbor that comes from this question. But they're saying, he's saying, look, you have a moral compass that you're living by, and I want to tell you that that moral compass can never lead you into the kingdom. This is why I have come. I have come to call not the righteous, not those who believe that their moral compass is right enough for them, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to say, look, my kingdom is open for anyone who repents, anyone who we know from other places comes to believe the gospel and give their lives to me the way Levi had given his life to him. So it's a beautiful statement of the gospel. Look, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, there's a lot of people who don't like this about Christianity. There are people in this city that you're going to host at your tables who will not like this message. Nietzsche, back in the day, was famous for talking about how Christianity was for the weak. That Christianity is for the weak. Those who believe in the gospel and trust in a savior other than the self, that just shows how weak a person is. Now, Nietzsche said a lot of things, but I think that's the truest thing he ever said. Christianity is for the weak. Christianity is for the sick. The gospel is for sinners who, who repent and trust in the Savior. So he's never spoken a, a truer word, in my opinion, but he doesn't quite go far enough because people who kind of been influenced by Nietzsche's mentality and his outlook on Christianity and the gospel, they refer to Jesus as a crutch for those of us who are limping our way through this life. But you know that Jesus is far more than a crutch. He's not, he's not just a crutch. He's our life support. He, he's who keeps us alive. He's who holds us together. He's who keeps us rolling as we journey through this world. So we cast our entire lives upon Jesus as he's not just a crutch, but he's our life support. And when Jesus makes this statement, here's what I think is happening. When Jesus makes this statement, this is when these three threads converge, and this is when we really see the kinds of tables that we want to be a part of in our life journey, in our life on mission. When he makes this statement, grace, community, and mission converge into one beautiful moment where the kingdom of heaven appears on earth. 
or the kingdom of God appears on earth as it is in heaven. In this moment, the Lord's prayer was being answered. Because in this moment, the kingdom of God was showing up in Levi's home. And the encouraging word for you and for me is that this means that our tables can become ground zero for God's, for the kingdom of God appearing on earth as it is in heaven where grace, community, and mission is enjoyed by all who are present and participating in that moment. This is when things can happen that advance God's kingdom in the world. This is why uh, there was a story given to me a few years ago that was written in a blog about a guy in our city. And it's his story and his, his testimony. It was passed to me when I was studying some of these themes several years ago now. But I want to share his story with you because it illustrates how this dynamic can play out. How leveraging take this ordinary moment of the table can be leveraged for extraordinary purposes. And this is what went down. The writer of the story said, We met in the elevator of our condo building. Instead of the classic stare down at the ground and avoid eye contact bit, I said hello and introduced myself. I asked him a few non-awkward basic questions. How long have you lived here? Do you like it? Have you met any cool people? The following week, I saw him in the lobby. We picked up the conversation with a longer discussion revolving around the Seattle Mariners and their dim prospects for the year. Now, this was several years ago, but some things haven't changed. He says, I checked again to see if he was up for talking more. If you want to watch a game at sport, that was a Seattle Sports Pub, just let me know. He accepted. We figured out a good date and time, and within a few weeks, we were grabbing a bite and watching a game together. It wasn't long before he found out I was a Christian, went to church, and loved Jesus. He said to me, wow, my stereotype of Christians has been blown away. You're normal. That's a big win when you're living on mission, right? That's a huge win. You're normal. That's one of the best compliments you can get from somebody who's far from God in our city. You're normal. You like good food and drink. You love your city and don't come off as a judgmental jerk. I soon invited him to church where he heard the gospel and he became a Christian and got involved in community. Praise God. An ordinary moment in an elevator. Being leveraged for an extraordinary purpose. An ordinary moment at a table in a sports bar being leveraged for extraordinary purposes. Living our life on mission isn't as hard as we make it out to be. Living on mission is as simple as leveraging ordinary moments in extraordinary ways. It's bringing the kingdom of God to bear on ordinary moments, ordinary contexts, ordinary situations of life. And there's not a single moment that any of us will have this week that's more ordinary than sitting down and eating food and drinking drink. When we do that, we are engaging in an ordinary activity and we have the opportunity to leverage it in an extraordinary way. That our table would become places of grace, community, and mission. But I know there's some fears, there's some excuses that we want to give not to do this type of thing or to value this as much as we hope to value it in the life of the church. Some of us might be objecting, saying, well, that just seems too scary. 
It's too scary to host people in my home. Somebody might come in and say things in front of my kids that I don't want my kids to hear. Or somebody might come into the home and, and they, might, you know, they, they might bring with them some smells or something along those lines, especially if we reach out to the marginalized. All these fears might be popping up, wondering, I'm too scared to do this. Or, or maybe you think, well, maybe my home isn't big enough or nice enough to have people over and to have people in, and so you're scared of what people might think. And if, if fear is causing you to object in this moment, let me encourage you not to confuse hosting with entertaining. There's a big difference between hosting and entertaining. Hosting is about the people who come and are present with you. You make it about them. If you're focused on entertaining, you're making that moment all about you, and your table's the wrong kind of table. If you're focused on entertaining rather than hosting, you're going to be focused on making sure all the laundry is put, picked up and put up and then everything is where it should go and, and your house never gets to where you really want it so that you're comfortable inviting anyone into it. If you're focused on entertaining, you're not going to make any progress in this direction. But don't confuse entertaining with hosting. Hosting is about others. It's not about you. It's about how can I serve them? How can I bless them? It's not how can I get them to praise me for how well organized and well kept my home is or how good my food tastes or whatever the case may be. So let's dispel that excuse. Let's don't confuse hosting and entertaining. Others might say, well, it costs too much to do this type of thing. It's too costly to turn my table into a place of grace, community, and mission and to leverage it in these ways. And, and it may cost a little bit, but if you're going to live a life on mission, there's going to be a point in time where sacrifice is required. You're going to have to sacrifice time. You're going to have to sacrifice talent. You will have to sacrifice treasure at some point in the journey. If you're engaging in activities right now that require no sacrifice, you might not be really engaging in the places, in the nooks and the crannies where Jesus is really present. Sacrifice will be required on some level and to some degree. But let me encourage you with this. You don't have to feed everyone filet mignon. Make soup. Soup goes a long way, right? You don't have to impress people with the quality of the meat you're serving or the food that you're cooking. You can do this in a very economical way. It can be done cheaply. So don't let the fear of cost uh, prevent you from engaging. And then the third excuse that I want to dismiss is the excuse that you might think, well, I'm too busy. I'm too busy to engage in these types of moments. And, and if you're tempted to think you're too busy, let me remind you that every person in the world has to eat. You're not too busy to eat yourself. You're going to take some time to eat. Chances are you're going to take some time and eat about 18 to 21 times in a single week. You can probably take one of those meals and leverage it intentionally. Let your table become a place of grace, community, and mission for just one of those meals. Just start there. How can you take one of your many meals that you will have this week and leverage it for an extraordinary purpose? I don't believe anyone is too busy to do this type of thing. This is why I think it's so beautiful. This is what I hope you're encouraged by as you journey with the Hallows Church faith family and as you yourself make up this faith family that we're not trying to create a bunch of extraordinary, abnormal events and opportunities for people to step into. No, we're just saying let's leverage what we already do. Let's take ordinary moments and use them in extraordinary ways and nothing is more ordinary than sitting down and eating breakfast, lunch, or dinner. 
And so you have a bunch of opportunity to make your life count and to live on mission. You have ample opportunities and you are encouraged. You are hopefully green lit to do just that. How do we engage the city of Seattle? Well, we engage it ordinarily at the table. We invite people into our homes and we accept invitations that we are given to go into theirs and to share meals and to be present and to feast and fellowship with people all in the service of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do just that? Give us grace to leverage ordinary moments in extraordinary ways. God, we ask and we pray that your grace would abound in that, that your spirit would be within us, empowering us and energizing us to turn our tables into places of grace, community, and mission. God, we ask and we pray all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.